Welcome to the Imperfect Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Neal, your host. Today, I have the honor of having a great friend of mine with us. And I count it an honor because I have been following this man for a number of years and learning from him. And he's been a distant mentor of mine through his preaching and also through his books, which we will get into a little bit later in the podcast. Today, I have Tullian Chavijan with us. Tullian, welcome to the Imperfect Leader Podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. You said my name perfect oh good Perfectly. well i've actually had to practice several times so, oh, I, uh, me too <laughs> <laughs> uh so Tullian just uh, finished up our momentum's men conference uh here at forest park church and we had a room filled with men and he just did a fantastic job with two sessions and then we had some q a at the end of the day and uh, i think i had several of the guys say they could have sat there for another hour and just uh, peppered him with questions and he just brought a message of encouragement and a message of grace to us, and it's just a wonderful uh, conference. And looking forward to our services tomorrow here at Forest Park. Uh, he's going to be in both of our services, and I'm going to be sitting back taking notes and putting things on uh, Facebook and Twitter and all those different things. So it's just a, an incredible opportunity to have him here. So we're going to jump right into this interview because there's a lot of things we can learn from Tullian and a lot of things that you will walk away from this podcast going, I, I need to pick up some of his books. I need to read some more of the things that uh, Tullian brings to uh, to the church. So let's jump into this. And the first thing I want to I want to uh, get into is your name, actually, as you mentioned <laughs> it. Uh, give everyone a little background to uh, your your name. That's an unusual name. So yes. where did it come from? What's the really okay? That? So my full name is William Graham Tullian Chavijan. Wow, that's my full name. Okay. Uh, the William Graham is after my maternal grandfather, the evangelist Billy Graham, yeah. my mom's father. Uh, Tullian is actually after the early church father, Tertullian, right. someone that my mother was studying when uh, she was pregnant with me and was so captivated by this early church father that she prayed and said, God, if this child growing in my womb as a boy. I want him to be just like Tertullian. So out I came and she named me. Now, rumor has it, uh, my name was William Graham Tertullian Chivijan for like the first three <laughs> days. And then thank God she dropped the Tur. Right. So it's just Tullian. Right. And the last name is Chivijan, rhymes with religion. That helps people sometimes, but it's an Armenian last name. Okay. My Dad's dad was from Armenia. My dad's mom was from Switzerland. My dad was born and raised in Switzerland. Yeah. Well, you mentioned about your grandfather being Billy Graham. Yeah. Uh, that, that's an amazing heritage there. Hmm. And tell us a little bit about what it is like to grow up with your granddad being Billy Graham, probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous, uh, Christian for a number of years around the world, at least his name being yeah. known. And uh, that had to, did it bring a lot of pressure to you? Was it a, was it a source of joy? Uh, give us a little background. Yeah, well, I didn't know any different because, you know, I've, that was all I knew. Um, I told the men this morning, someone asked about that, and I told the men this morning that I didn't realize until I was a little bit older just what a big deal it was uh, because it was my upbringing was very normal. My grandparents were very present. They were extremely accessible. Uh, they were very down-to-earth people, so they never carried themselves as being more important than anybody else. So they did a really good job, I think, of shielding us from just how important he was by 
not acting as if he were important. But of course, as I got older and began to realize more and more what he did and the impact he had had around the world, uh, it was amazing. I mean, I, you know, we, we call, there are 19 of us grandchildren, and we called them Daddy Bill and Tete. Tete is, is a simple word that means wise old woman in Chinese, and she was born and raised in China. She's not Chinese, but her parents were medical missionaries uh, who were um, in China as missionaries when she was born, so she grew up in China. Um, and I just knew them as Daddy Bill and Tete. I didn't really know them as anything other than that. And um, and so it was remarkable. I loved it. Um, I never felt any pressure to be good or pressure to go into ministry or anything like that because of who my grandfather was. Never. They never imposed that kind of pressure at all on any of the grandkids. I think proof of that is the fact that out of their 19 grandchildren, only two of us went to seminary, and I'm the only one that became a pastor. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's just proof in and of itself that there was no external pressure to sort of go into ministry, so yeah. to speak. Now, I will say this. Um, I did feel some pressure growing up in the family that I did, but it was not pressure from the outside. It was internal self-imposed pressure. And more specifically, when you grow up the way that I did and you see uh, global impact uh, the way that I did from as far back as I can remember, um, you you want your life to count and you want to do something big. You get a taste for what it's like to have a big worldwide impact. And so uh, you want to do something similar to that. Anything else feels like, you know, it's uh, less important or whatever, Um, which I don't believe is true. But at the time in my formative years, that was some real self-imposed pressure that I put on myself. But never did I feel any pressure at all from my family or my grandparents. Once in a while, I grew up going to Christian schools, and sometimes I would get the sense from some of my teachers that I should be more well-behaved because of the family that I come from. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some external pressure like that, Uh from you know, youth group leaders or teachers or things like that. I think some youth group leaders assumed that I would just be a, a leader in their youth group because of who my grandfather was, but I was not interested in that stuff at all, as we'll get into in a few minutes at that time in my life. Um, but never any pressure from my family. I, was, I can never remember one time where my grandparents or my parents or anybody else in my family made it sound like, I needed to be a certain way or live a certain way because I'm representing the family ever. They just never put that kind of pressure on us, which I thank God for. I found it fascinating this morning. You mentioned that uh, I'm sure you had a few uh, conversations with your your grandfather uh, related to scripture, related to theology. Mm -hmm. But some of your most interesting or most impactful conversations had to do with some history. Yes. Uh, The people he knew, the people he was able to you know, hang out with, Mm -hmm. uh, that had to be an amazing, I just can't even imagine that kind of conversation with some of the men he and women he met throughout his life. Well, and it was because I, I'm somewhat of a history buff. I love history to be able to sit and have conversations with him about 20th century history, for instance, uh, and to hear it from a man who helped shape it 
and the kinds of people that he influenced and the conversations he had and the people that he met. It's just fascinating to me. I mean, I, I would sit in his room. I can remember as he got older and as I became more appreciative of who he was and what he had accomplished, I would sit in his room and we would talk for hours and I would yeah. just ask him question after question like, what was it like meeting Winston Churchill yeah. or, you know, what was it like, you know, who was your favorite president and why? And, uh, you know, what was it like meeting C.S. Lewis? And, you know, he helped form seminaries in this yeah. country. He started Christianity Today, the magazine, the, you know, really the preeminent evangelical mag magazine uh, still today. I mean, he really helped launch a movement. Yeah. Um and so I just, you know, I loved, I, one of the questions at one point in time, uh, I was devouring everything that John Stott wrote. John Stott was a Anglican minister uh, in the Church of England in the 20th century, wrote many, many, many books, very well known in certain circles. And I just loved everything John Stott was writing. And so I knew that he and my granddad were pretty close friends. And John Stott is the one Christian leader that I really wanted to meet and didn't have the opportunity to before he died. But I remember asking him some very specific questions about John Stott and his personal life. He was a lifelong bachelor, never got married. Um, my granddad said he was by far the most disciplined man he had ever met in his life. So just conversations like that, questions that I would have about people. And you think the fact that he was a bachelor and very disciplined. Yeah, or... right. Like how hard is it not to be disciplined, or how hard is it to be disciplined when you have no wife and children? Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I think there's a connection there. Right. I want to I want to go back uh, into your younger years. Um, I think most people would imagine, given the fact that your grandfather was Billy Graham, that you just grew up, and you did grow up, obviously, with a Christian heritage, but you just— uh, somehow just inherited yeah, holiness. Were, yeah, right. You were always a Christian and just somewhat matured in your faith, but that isn't your story. No, there were actually a number of years where you did not follow Christ. So mm -hmm. take us back a little bit to maybe high school and right out of high school into the college years. And how yeah. did you, how did it become personal to you? How did you embrace the faith? Yeah, so I'm the middle of seven children. My parents had seven kids, and I'm in the middle. There are two boys, no, excuse me, five boys and two girls. So I've got two brothers and an older sister and two brothers, two older brothers and an older sister, two younger brothers and a younger sister, and I'm right in the middle. Uh, my upbringing was very enjoyable. Um, I The flavor of Christianity that was expressed in my home growing up was not legalistic or oppressive or anything like that. It was very hospitable and fun and uh, enjoyable. Uh, my parents taught all of us to take God seriously, but to never take ourselves too seriously. So I often joke and say that sar sarcasm is the Chivijan love language. Yeah. <clears throat> so lots of laughter growing up. And I don't know exactly what it was. Perhaps it was because I was a middle child and didn't really know where I fit. Was I the youngest of the older three or the oldest of the younger three? You know, wh where did I fit inside the home? Maybe that had something to do with it, but I ended up dropping out of high school at 16 years old, <clears throat> getting kicked out of my house at 16 years old. Uh, my lifestyle had become so disruptive to the rest of the family that my parents really had no choice. They came to me and said, listen, we love you. We will always love you. But if you're going to continue living this way, you can't live this way under our roof because we have other kids we have to, you know, take care of. So they kicked me out. Um... 
And dropping out of high school and getting kicked out of my house at 16 at that time was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I grew up in South Florida, uh, born in Jacksonville, but raised in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I was at a point in my life where I just wanted everyone and everything to get out of my way. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, with who I wanted to do it. Um, and so with no parents looking over my shoulder or teachers breathing down my neck, I felt like I was finally free to pursue whatever I wanted. And, uh, I just led a very riotous, uh, risky, debaucherous life for about five or six years. And the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but when that season comes to an end, you're left with a gaping hole in your soul that only God is big enough to fill. And that season came to an end for me at 21. It wasn't a particular event or any particular circumstance. It was just this culminating sense of there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. There has to be more to who I am than what this world keeps telling me. Um, and so <clears throat> I can't remember any kind of you know, flash in the sky or writing on the wall or anything like that. It was just this... Like I said, this culminating sense of there's got to be more. And because of the foundation that my parents laid out for us, all of us kids laid down for us, I knew what the answer was. I was just avoiding it. Um, and so very much like the prodigal in the parable, the prodigal son, uh, I sort of, you know, picked myself up and walked home, so to speak. In retrospect, what I now see is that the hound of heaven tracked me down and magnificently defeated me and brought me from death to life, really. And when people ask me, when did you become a Christian? I always say, I have no clue. I mean, I don't know if I became a Christian when I was a little boy and my mom led me in, you know, what was then called the sinner's prayer, or if I became a Christian for the first time at 21. I don't, I don't know. All I know is that everything in my life changed almost overnight. Um, and the things that I was, that I used to run away from, I started running toward and the things that I used to run toward, I started running away from. And, uh, I had this overwhelming sense of peace that I had been missing that had eluded me for so long. Um, I just, I knew God loved me and I was so grateful for that. And I wanted to spend the rest of my life telling as many people as I could about this amazingly gracious God who comes after bad people like me and patiently pursues us. I wanted to talk and tell the whole world about his outrageous mercy and how he does not give us what we deserve. I wanted to tell the whole world about his unconditional love and the fact that he will never give up on us, that there is nothing we can do or fail to do that will ever get God to bail on us. Um, and I wanted to tell the whole world that. And I didn't know what form that would take. Um, like I said, I had dropped out of high school, so I had just been working. Uh, I did construction for a while. I worked in a few different hotels. I waited tables at a few different restaurants, but had no real clue where I was going to go with my life. And when all of this happened at 21, uh, I got married to the girl that I'd been dating for about two years and started college. We got married at 21. I turned 22 on our honeymoon. And then we started, I started college that fall, the fall of 1994. Um, 
went to. Now, when you went to college, were you pursuing? Did you go to college for ministry? I went to college just because I wanted to study. Okay. I mean, I knew that I was, I was sort of heading in the direction of ministry, but I wasn't thinking that far. I'm just like, I just, I became an egghead overnight. I just, my mind was asking questions, theological questions, philosophical questions, existential questions, practical questions. I just, I just wanted to read and I just wanted to study and I wanted to learn. I was a sponge. And so I, um, there was a school in uh, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, Columbia International University that accepted me on probation because I'd never taken SATs. Um, I did have a high school diploma, but it was a GED from the state of Florida. So uh, when I applied, I didn't have all the proper documentation. So they allowed me to come. Uh, but I was on probation, meaning that they would see if I could handle the load for the first semester. And if I could, I could stay. So my uh, young wife at the time and me moved. Um, and I finished my degree. I got a bachelor's degree in philosophy and finished it in three and a half years. Loved, loved, loved my college years. By the time I graduated college, uh, my wife at the time and I had two, two boys, two small boys. Um, by the time I finished college, it was clear to me that I wanted to go to seminary. Now, I wasn't sure at that time if that meant that God was preparing me to preach or if God was preparing me to teach. And what I mean by that is, was God calling me to the church or was God calling me to the academy? Was he calling me to, you know, be a professor somewhere at a college or a seminary or was he calling me to be a pastor of a church? I didn't know the answer to that question until my second semester of my second year in seminary when it became pretty clear to me that God was calling me to the church. I had served as a youth pastor while I was in college at a local church, and I served as a youth pastor at a local church when I was in seminary. And uh, I just, I felt like there was, um, there was more uh, power in the pulpit than there was in the lectern in terms of influencing average everyday people um, and helping everyday average people. So uh, I graduated from seminary, uh, and my wife at the time and I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. I was hired on at a large church to serve as an associate pastor. Um, We had been there for maybe three months or so, and our third child was born, my daughter Jenna, uh, in September of 2001. Uh, I served there as a pastor to young adults, which in that church was everybody in their 20s and 30s for two years. And then I got a call from a group of people back home in South Florida uh, asking if I would be interested in coming to start a church down there. Yeah, I want to get into that because that's an interesting story about the beginning of this church Mm -hmm. in uh, Florida. I have a question regarding your, your concept of grace and your concept of of how the finished work of Christ applies to, you know, to all of us, not just to enter into a relationship with Christ, mm-hmm. but to sustain us mm-hmm. and to continue to grow with it. Did, was this knowledge of, of grace formed at this point? Did seminary help to mature that? Or did you just have a general knowledge of that? I'm curious, when did you, did, were you mentored by someone? Mm-hmm. Uh, did someone give you a, a stack of books and say, read this? Where did this concept, a very strong, robust, concept of grace come from or did you have it at this point um i would say that my uh 
well-developed theology of grace that I embrace wholeheartedly today, I did not specifically get while I was in college or seminary. I would say that it was there in some ways because of the gracious atmosphere in which I was raised. My father was incredibly gracious. My mother was gracious. Uh, my grandparents were gracious. Uh, so there was this overwhelming sense of God's goodness and grace and mercy and unconditional love that uh was pervasive in the atmosphere that I grew up in. But in terms of a hammered out theology of grace, uh, I mean, I got a little bit of that. Uh, you can't be in too many Christian circles these days without hearing something about the grace of God. Um, but I've discovered um, that talking about grace and giving lip service to the concept of grace and God's unconditional love and those sorts of things uh, is one thing, but really teasing out the implications of just how amazing and radical grace is, uh, is an entirely different matter. So uh, the seminary that I went to was uh, predominantly Presbyterian seminary, and um and so I, my theology was predominantly Presbyterian at that time. And Presbyterians do talk a lot about the doctrines of grace and the grace of God and those sorts of things. Um, and uh, I did have a few mentors during that time that helped kind of push me along. Uh, but a lot of what I now believe about the grace of God um, I think came after my seminary years, after my college and seminary years. In fact, I jokingly tell people, and it's not really a joke at all, that uh, I actually had to unlearn a handful of things that I learned specifically in seminary to get to where I am today. And I think, you know, because I was in a predominantly Presbyterian seminary, we predominantly read and studied what Presbyterians had to say about things. So when I started reading what Anglicans said about things or Lutherans said about things or other people said about things, um, it started to open my eyes to a much bigger world than, one I, than the one I had been exposed to. And so I found a lot of mentors um, in from a variety of different traditions, reformational traditions in the sense that they all sort of come from that Protestant stream, but at the same time, uh, people who taught me a lot about uh, the distinction between God's law and God's gospel and what that means, um, people who taught me a lot about just the sort of the, the radicality of God's grace and all of those things that I now hold very near and dear to my heart and uh, preach as hard and as often as I can. So that was a, a, a gradual unfolding yes. within your life. Yeah. And a lot of that, I imagine, was running parallel to you beginning this new church in yeah, South Florida. Yeah, some of learning. it start, um Yeah, I think back in 2003, so we moved back to South Florida 
in 2003 to start this church, New City Church, mm-hmm. um, at the request of this group of people. It was a Presbyterian church. And um, I would say that for the first two or three years, I was preaching biblical sermons. I was preaching out of out of the Bible, preaching through books of the Bible. But More in terms of a Presbyterian of, approach? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Okay. I mean, it didn't, it, depending on what people think about when they think about Presbyterians, I know a lot of people think that they are uh, sort of robe-wearing, mm-hmm. stuffy, frozen, chosen people. And a lot of them are, sadly. That was not the feel of our church. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that a sort of a, um, a real hammered-out uh, theology of grace— or a theology more specifically of law and gospel as a grid by which sort of a, a hermeneutical grid by which I read the Bible and understand the Bible that wasn't really formed until maybe my third or fourth year as pastor of this church plant. So your, your sermon slowly began to change. Yes. Yeah. In fact, I was, so you were changing in front of your congregation. Yes. Yeah. Which is very well said. A lot of pastors. Yes. And congregations. I, I've learned just over time that many, you know, congregations hire a, a pastor to come in and they want him to remain basically that way. Right. You know, for for the next and 15 not grow. Years. Right. right. And, and pastors go through their own crisis they almost do. sometimes when they begin to uh, what which what they ought to do is study, you yep. know, take additional classes, uh, books come across them, they right. listen to podcasts, whatever, their mind begins to change, their heart begins to expand, mm-hmm. they begin to read more widely, more deeply, they actually evolve and morph in front of their people. Yes. And that can be somewhat uh, concerning to the average, you know. It can uh, be. Yeah, yeah. congregant. It sitting can there be. watching their pastor's theology, I think in many cases, Improve. evolve. Yeah, yeah, evolve into a better place a deeper place yeah but that's difficult for some churches yeah and i um i was my wife and i were flying somewhere recently and i was going through some old files looking for something on my laptop on the plane and i came across a file with a bunch of old sermons and i was reading through some of these sermons and i was aghast at what i said right Literally aghast at one point, this is going to sound kind of crass. I'm sorry, but, uh, my wife had her headphones on. She was watching a movie sitting in the seat next to me. I had my headphones on listening to music with my laptop and I was sort of typing away. And at one point she had no idea what I was doing, but she looks over and I am giving a double fisted bird to my computer screen. Okay. And she's like, with this look on my face, like I was angrier than, you know, she's like, what is the matter? And I'm like, I'm reading some of my old sermons and I can't stand myself right, right now. Right. Like I, I, I literally stopped and started praying for anybody and everybody who heard me <laughs> preach those sermons. Right. Um, so yeah, I would say that anything before anything that I wrote or said before 2006 needs to be expunged from the right. record forever. Yeah. I heard someone say, if 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 you quote me, you better date me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly be- right. Because yeah, because I want people to know when I, I said, said that. That's right, and I yeah. think that's very wise. But I but I changed. did I I was undergoing somewhat of a metamorphosis, yeah. and um and when you are charged to preach every week 
that metamorphosis, like you said, is happening before your people, yeah. which on the one hand I think is good if the metamorphosis is heading in a good direction. Sure. Sure. Sometimes the evolution heads in a bad direction, yeah. which is not good. But um, but I, I believe that mine was heading in a good direction. And, and the other thing that it does is because I'm growing intellectually and emotionally, theologically, uh, I am excited about what I'm learning right. and that inspired my preaching. Right. So my preaching was very fresh. It was very alive as I was undergoing this, you know, sort of evolution, so to speak. Um, and I didn't, you know, I, I did, there were, there were some people who were like, this is different than what you used to say. And I would just simply say, thank you for noticing. I agree. And some people loved it and yeah. some people left the church because of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, so you're you're planning this new city church yeah. in Fort Lauderdale as a result of uh, a few people who wanted you to come and, and plant this church. Yeah. And you go and it begins to grow. Mm-hmm. Right. You begin to reach people in the area Were these people uh, church people mainly Were the unchurched Were these people had never followed Christ before burned out religious it folks was sitting really in other a mixture. churches. I mean, it started with a core group of people who yeah. were churched. Right. And um, there were about a hundred or so, and they were really motivated. And because I was from that area, they knew who I was. They knew my mom and my dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them came from a church where my mom and dad used to be members. And so uh, there were these were a group of people who were familiar with me. And I couldn't wait to get back to South Florida. I mean, I am a South Floridian to the core of my being. I love everything about it. The multicultural flavor of it, the beach, the weather, everything about it. I love it. The culture, everything. So uh, we moved there and uh, this church started to grow pretty quickly. And I mean, for South Florida standards. So by the time we were five years old, there were maybe seven, 800 people, which in a unchurched area like South Florida is, you know, serious church growth. Um, so that was really moving along and going well. Um, we were meeting, we had multiple services in a high school auditorium. Uh, we were looking for property. Uh, we were doing well in every imaginable way. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement. The church was expanding, growing. Um, the message was clearer than it had been when the church started. Um, the mission was clearer. The vision was clearer. And then something happened to disrupt my world significantly. Uh, a, a much more well-known church about 20 minutes south of where New City was Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, which your older listeners, if they grew up in church at all, will have heard, they will have heard of this church, pastored by, the founding pastor was uh, D. James Kennedy, uh, who was well known in a variety of different circles. His sermons were on TV every week around the world. He started an evangelistic outreach called Evangelism Explosion, uh, wrote a number of books, very well known. And later on in his life, he became very involved in kind of the uh, the religious right and the moral majority and stuff like that. But um, so he's known for good things and not so good things. But regardless, he died. He was older and he died uh, in 2007. This was a very large church. Very influential. Uh, its reputation was large, okay. but it had it was in decline. Okay. So and he had been there 
close to he had been well the the church started in 1960 and he died in 2007 so 47 years is that right he was the founding pastor founding pastor and and the church's only pastor wow so they were now in you know for the very first time they were now looking for a pastor yeah and uh, I had, I had, we had, a, my family and I had a relationship with that church. Uh, my brothers and sisters and I went to school. They have, they operate a school, Westminster Academy, which is a preschool through 12th grade college prep school. So we went to that school. Um, my granddad actually, uh, preached the dedication service of their new church building in 1974. I was 18 months old when he went to preach the dedication service at that church. Uh, he and D James Kennedy and my granddad knew each other. Um, and then I would go and do a radio show, a call-in show every week. They also had a radio station and I would go in and do a live call-in show where anybody could call in and ask any question they wanted. And I was live on the air midday answering questions people could ask biblical questions the so I, and then i was invited to speak at a couple events that they had so they were familiar with me i was of course familiar with them so they came to me and asked if i would be interested in becoming their next pastor and i said i'm honored i'm humbled but i'm not interested at all our churches were very very different coral ridge was much more formal the congregation was much older much more traditional we were not that way so they came back to me a second time and asked if I would reconsider. And I said, I'm humbled, I'm honored, but I'm not interested. They came to me a third time and asked. And I said, listen, the only way that I would ever consider this is if we merged the two churches. Not thinking that they would go for that at all. But there was no way that I could envision leaving the church I started to go 20 minutes down the road to another church. I feel like I was abandoning my child. Um, so much to my surprise, they agreed. So we put a team of people together and went through about a three or four month due diligence process. And, uh, when that process was over, it was clear that God wanted us to merge these two churches. And so we did, uh, in March of 2009, we merged new city and Coral Ridge merged. And these two churches became one new church and for the first 10 days, it was amazing. And then all hell broke loose. Yeah. You know, you try to merge. Did you keep the name, Coral Ridge? Yes. Or, okay, yep, so that, kept the name. The yep. name stayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we did that for a couple of different reasons. But, you know, when you try to merge anything, yeah. two families, yeah. two businesses, specifically two churches, especially two churches that were as different as ours were, were you know, I mean, Did you're you going to staff from both churches together or some of uh, each, or? some stayed and some were let go. Okay. And that was a big, you know, that was a big thing because you had basically double staff people. Yeah. Um, you know, they had a staff and we had a staff. And so we brought someone in who did a full scale evaluation of all the staff. And then we worked through all of that and some were kept on and some were let go and other new people were hired and. Uh, so there was a lot of staff turnover in the first 18 months or so. Uh, we essentially replanted the whole church. And I likened it at the time to the lighting of a unity candle at a wedding ceremony where you, two candles, two separate candles are brought together to light one new candle and then the two separate candles are extinguished. That's really what this wa- what this was. So for the first year or so, maybe 18 months, it was really, really rough. Uh, we knew it would be rough and it was rough. 
And then was it more of a clash of styles. It was a clash of everything. Okay. A clash of clash of styles. Um, you know, Coral Ridge had a traditional service, a contemporary service. The Coral Ridge had uh, there were a variety of different tribes under one roof. There was a a really strong political tribe that was all about, you know, sort of the things that Dr. Kennedy was into, the moral majority stuff and the religious right. Um, you had an evangelism explosion tribe that, you know, the, this church needs to be solely about evangelism explosion. The worship wars going on under one roof uh, were very present. So we knew we had our work cut out for us when we decided to merge the two churches. But slowly... Surely we were able to, you know, bring all of that together and one new church was birthed and what we saw happen as a result of that was nothing short of a gospel revolution, in my opinion. Um, I really felt like for a few years there, Coral Ridge was ground zero for a gospel reformation that was beginning to spread far and wide. While I was there, I started a ministry called Liberate, which uh, amongst other things was a conference. It was a yearly conference, an annual conference. Uh, it was a it was a weekly TV show. It was a daily radio show. It was a very well-resourced website. It was a pastor's network, a church network. Uh, we were getting ready to uh, unleash a series of commentaries and all of that stuff where our, our basically the whole mission of Liberate was to globally rebrand Christianity around the message of God's forgiveness. Um, and uh, the fact that we are all great sinners, but God is an even greater Savior and what that literally means. And so that was blowing up. Liberate was blowing up. I mean, it was. So this is about 18 months now into this. Well, now, Liberate was started in 2012. So that was three okay, years three into years. it. But about 18 months to two years into the merger was when we began to feel the tide turn. Okay. So it took about a year and a half before you could see yes. a positive shifting. And that was actually. As painful as it was, and it seemed like 20 years yeah. when we were in the middle of it, yeah. but it was actually quite quick. I mean, I talked to lots of pastors who walk into situations where a church needs to be replanted, rebranded, the whole deal. And it can take, you know, three to five years, if not longer. The reason ours went a little bit quicker was because it was a merger. Mm -hmm. And because I was able to say to both sides, we're not doing it the way we've always done it. So New City, everything's going to change for you. Coral Ridge, everything's going to change for you. Everything's going to change for everybody because what we're essentially doing is starting one new church with two groups of people. Yeah. So because of that, we were able to kind of accelerate some of the changes. I can't even imagine the amount of stress on you. Oh. I just, I just cannot even Man, imagine. It was up until that point, by far, the most painful season of my life. Well, I had always been in places where I was widely accepted and widely loved and widely approved. And now I found myself for the very first time, I was 36 years old and I found myself for the very first time in a place where there were people who did not like me and they did not know me. They just didn't like me because I represented something they didn't want to see happen, which was change. Now, it, it sounds as if that's coming more from, not that you're saying it, but I'm just wondering, I guess it, 
I would imagine it would be coming more from the Coral Ridge oh, side. Oh, it was almost okay. all coming from the Coral Ridge okay. side. Now, so New Day, New New, new uh, City, New City was uh, obviously they had to make some changes, big time. But they were better with the changes than the people. Uh, yeah, in- because they were because Coral Ridge was becoming a little bit more like what they were used to as a church okay. when we were on our own. Um, but the first wave of dissent came from Coral Ridge people, yeah. not all Coral Ridge people, but sure. a, a small, but very vocal minority. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then there was a second wave that came from new city people, yeah. uh, because, um, everything, like you said, was changing for them too. Yeah. And some of them liked the way it was before. So very few people loved you. And a whole lot of people were somewhat Yeah, now I would say there. I felt a lot of love okay. from a lot of people, but there was also a lot of loud hate okay. coming from people. And I, at up and until that, that point, yeah, that was brand new. new. Yeah. I mean, I, it's amazing to me that I had been able, up until that point, to survive roughly nine years of pastoral ministry without ever feeling hated by people. I mean, yeah. that's a gift from God in and it of is. itself. So... Uh, this was the first time where I felt like I was unknown and yet unloved and uh, unjustly criticized. That's the way it felt to me. Um, but the interesting thing, even though I had been on this theological journey of rediscovering the gospel that started a few years earlier, it was that crisis that pushed me into the understanding of the gospel that I have today Mm. because I was pushed into a place where um, I had to realize that so much of the pain I was experiencing in this transition was the lack of acceptance and the lack of love and the lack of approval I was getting from those around me. And that pushed me into a much deeper understanding of the gospel in which the gospel says, all of the love and all of the acceptance and all of the approval that you long for, you already have because of what Jesus has done for you. That insight set me free. And that more than anything changed the course of my ministry and specifically the message of my ministry forever. So it had started to evolve while I was at New City um, but it was that crisis that pushed me into the deep end of the pool, right. and I've never turned back. Right. So you begin to evolve. Uh, eventually, liberate starts. Mm-hmm. The church basically turns around. Turns now, around. And you kind of bottom out. Uh, yep. Maybe some of the people who were most vocal leave. Yep. Uh, some new people begin to come, yep. and now they're not loyal to Core Ridge or loyal to New City. Right. They, this is the only church they've known. Yep. So you start to move upward and mm-hmm. you start to see some traction mm. and the church begins to grow. Yeah. And eventually you you have a crisis in your life. How mm. long is it by the time you you really start to see the church now begin to grow, liberate, started, things are moving forward before the new crisis that we'll get into happens in your life? Yeah. So I got to Coral Ridge in March of 2009 and my life came off the rails uh, in May, June of 2015. So about six years. A little over six years. Okay. Yeah. And in that six years, like I said, the first year and a half, two years was sort of very transitional. And then the last four, we were operating on all cylinders. Okay, so 
help me understand and help help those in our audience, especially pastors and church leaders, understand. You're you're starting to change on the inside. Mm-hmm. You're beginning to understand grace more than than you've ever seen it or understood it before. It mm-hmm. becomes deeper and and wider and. Uh, more powerful maybe I'm looking for the right word to just describe what's yeah. happened in you the church is finally beginning to turn around now. yeah we're grooving. yeah liberate yeah. has started you have this this belief that mm-hmm. this is ground zero for a new reformation yeah, if you will right. of the gospel that's the way it felt and things you you can only see at this time blue skies ahead yeah yep. who knows what's going to happen that's right. I mean we we could see a massive movement across this nation even around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you feel as if you've bled, you know, you've cried, you've you've you said yes to a very difficult situation. So you've sacrificed for this new church. Everything is seems up and to the right. Mm-hmm. Your future looks bright. Yeah. And things blow up. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what happened and then really more than what, mm. because that's, you know, I don't want to get into the what so much. I want to get into the a little bit to the why Mm. how did that happen with all that going on and all this knowledge of grace and upward and to the right with your church blue skies ahead it still was a crash and burn in your life tell us a little bit about that yeah so um everything fell apart in 2015 early 2015 well yeah late spring 2015 um my first marriage had started to fall apart, uh, and it ultimately ended in divorce, in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife. Uh, because I was a very public person, all of that played out very publicly. Uh, and overnight, everything and everyone, for the most part, uh, that had played a significant role in my life over the last, you know, the previous 10 years was gone, gone. So here I am, 42 years old at the time, 41, undergoing a massive identity crisis because unbeknownst to me, I had located my worth, my identity, my value. The same guy now yeah, who's preaching right? that all of the acceptance and all the approval and all of the worth and value and love we long for are already ours in Christ, uh, found himself, me, unbeknownst to me, locating my identity in things much smaller than that. Uh, How did that happen? That's a great question. I've been in, I've been through hours and hours of counseling over the last four and a half years trying to answer that question. Um, One way that I will put it very simply, although this is by no means exhaustive, um, a shift happened that I could not sense at the time. I can only see it now in retrospect. But a shift happened where I had previously located my worth, so to speak, in the message of the gospel. And... The more successful I became, uh, and I mean, I was writing a book a year, and they were selling a lot of copies. Uh, The church was growing. Liberate was growing. Everything you just said. Uh, My sermons were broadcast around the world on TV and every day on the radio. And I mean, it was just everything was just grooving. And uh, success, in my opinion, can be far more dangerous than failure. 
And it seemed like a subtle shift happened, not like the sudden rush of a tidal wave, but the sudden creep of the tide, where I went from locating my worth and my value in the message of the gospel to locating my worth and value in my success as a messenger of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And when that, and that's a very subtle thing that can happen to lots of pastors, it might not be a message, but it might be the growth of their church, or it might be whatever the case may be, um, their reputation or whatever. Um, And when that happened, when that shift happened, like I said, this was not a conscious shift. It's not like I had this strategized and planned out. I mean, these things just, they sort of sneak up on you and there is this progressive desensitization and you don't feel it or see it while it's happening. Um, and then you find yourself, you know, in wreckage and bodies all over the interstate and you're like, how in the world did I get here? I mean, I had everything to lose and I lost it all. How does a human being get to the point where they can have everything I had, not just on the outside, but the internal joy and enthusiasm for life that I had, my excitement about everything that was going on. And I loved the people that I worked with and the, my colleagues and my, you know, the opportunities. I mean, I loved it all. Like what, how in the world, um, you know, there's, I don't know if there is a simple answer to that. We, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that we are far worse than we think we are. (laughs) One of the things I told the men this, this morning, Six months before my train came off the rails, I said to our church in a sermon that if your understanding of Christianity does not have room for the fact that your greatest failure may be in front of you, scrap it. Because it's impossible to read the Bible and come away with the fact that our greatest failures, once we become Christians, are now behind us. That's just not true. Um... And so, and then of course, six months later, my greatest failure happens. Um, I think to get really practical here, um, I, I put, I think to a certain degree, secondary things in primary places. So my marriage uh, is, at least ought to be, my first ministry period. It should be. Uh, in For a married couple, the marriage is the hubcap of life. And everything else in one way, shape, or form revolves around that, especially if you're in ministry. And, um, and that just started to kind of fall apart. And it didn't fall apart in any kind of hostile way, like we're screaming and fighting all. It just, it's just, there's just kind of this growing numbness or dullness. It's not like we were upset with each other. I mean, we'd talk and hang out and go to dinner and go on vacation. And But there was just kind of this, there were these voids being created. And there's a, a variety of reasons why these voids were created. Um, but there were voids that were created uh, and then those voids were filled with things that, you know, were, yeah. they weren't meant to be filled with. But we can become so blind 
to our own proclivities, uh, to our own temptations, uh, especially when things in life are going well, especially when things are going in life are going well. That's when you should be on watch the most when things are going really well. And because of the ministry we were doing, I felt like we were, we were ushering a full unadulterated frontal attack on moralism and the kind of off messaging that happens in much of the church, specifically in America. So, you know, in some sense we were a target, a target of spiritual warfare. Um, I mean, there were just, there, when any, anytime someone falls, there's all, it's not just one thing going on. There are always a hundred things going on a yeah. hundred. And let me say this, even though you didn't ask about this, <laughs> but let me say this for any man who is listening or woman for that matter, who's dealing with infidelity. Um, people assume that, uh, infidelity is first and foremost about sex it is not. Now, I know that there are some people out there with sex addictions and, you know, they're sort of perpetual cheaters because they have this fix that they need. Um, but for most people, including myself, who find themselves in a situation of infidelity or adultery, it is not about sex. Some people think that if a man commits adultery, it's about trying to fill a sexual void. And if a woman commits adultery, it's about trying to fill a, uh, an emotional or relational void. Um, it's not that cut and dry at all. I will say this. I, I can speak for myself and for many other men that have been in the same situation that I have been in. Uh, it's just not a sex thing. And if it was simply a sex thing, that's actually an easier problem to fix. When you begin to realize it's a, it's an emotional thing, it's a psychological thing, uh, it it it's a you know it's a mental thing, it's a spiritual thing. There are a lot of different things that go into that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think you come away with a more realist realistic understanding of why things like that happen. Yeah. So you're sitting. Um in the middle of the mess that, that you've caused, what what is the overwhelming thought in this moment when you realize what has happened and you look around at all the staff, depending on you, and mm. all these people who've given their, you know, their their heart, you mm. know, to the vision, mm. uh, the people who are going to take liberate around the world, um, this moment of realization that you've caused, this ripple effect that's mm-hmm. going to now go to so many different people. What's what's telling and thinking in that moment? Besides thinking my life is over, legitimately over, I was also dealing with a tremendous amount, a paralyzing amount of guilt, shame, and regret. Uh you know, you, it's going, when a crisis of that magnitude comes to your front door, it's like smelling salts. Yeah. And whereas you had been acting, you know, uh, in a way that was, uh, sort of disconnected from reality, the smelling salts wake you up to reality very quickly. And, uh, I, I was confused I was angry. 
I was sad. I was overcome with guilt. Um, I, you know, I think the church does a pretty good job ministering to people who suffer because of what someone else has done to them. I don't think the church does a really good job of ministering to someone who is suffering because of what they've done to themselves or yeah. what they've done to other people. Yeah. And so um, I, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that if I was a victim, I would get the kind of support that, you know, I needed during that season. Uh, but I wasn't. And so I sort of knew, okay, I'm, I'm going to get blackballed here. I mean, I'm, I'm the world that had previously been open to me is now forever closed. And, uh, dealing with that, the loss of life, really my life and the crushing blow it was to my children and to my now ex-wife and to the people who looked to me and trusted me and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, it was debilitating, absolutely debilitating. I was, and I talk about this very openly, um, I was suicidal for a solid year, if not a little bit longer. Whereas where the thought of taking my own life crossed my mind every single day without fail, without fail. It may be a fleeting thought one day and a constant thought another day, but there was not a day that went by. Death seemed preferable than life to me at that time. Um, Guilt and shame and regret are real things, and they were certainly real for me, and it was very painful. And uh, dealing with the pain of uh, broken relationships and a lost life and the fact that I had been a chief cause of that, it was, it was debilitating. I would imagine that once everything you know, happened and, and came to light, and I'm sure that was a, a slow process of people learning what happened and you beginning to uh, tell your story, and I'm sure other people telling your story for you and yes. you, you know didn't even or at least parts that, of the right, story exactly. or an entirely made up story yeah yes um, <laughs> you had to deal with that constantly um how did you go about the, the the pain and i'm sure you're still dealing with the ramifications of of the decisions you've made but how did you deal with the pain and with your your kids yeah i know because you mentioned even in the in the conference and and also just following you on social mm-hmm. media and, and reading your books the love you have for your kids mm-hmm. and the uh, I can't even imagine the pain, mm. you know, as a father to know, especially when you've got this heritage, you know, mm-hmm. of a family and your your grandfather is Billy Graham and the sense of respect and honor around mm-hmm. the world. And here you feel as if you've marred, mm-hmm. you know, so much of of uh, reputation or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is. How, how did you go about working your way through the pain to your friends, your staff, your yeah. children? Um I know that's in and of itself could be yeah. an entire podcast. Yeah, but just, yeah. Just briefly in the sense that I imagine some of the staff probably just walked away. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot maybe to do with that. And some people, I've heard you say before, just within 24 hours, they abandoned you. Oh, yeah. That was, it was over. Yeah. But you have some others, though, that obviously yeah. are your your family. Yeah. They, they get a, you're still their dad. Yeah. You yeah. know, you're still their brother. And that's the you're important. Still, that, that, 
to me, you know, uh, marriages that in, have to endure this level of betrayal, uh, some last, many don't. Um, and as hard as that is for, you know, the, those two people having to sort of break up, so to speak, uh, divorce is an incredibly painful thing. Uh, it's not the thing, it's not the kind of thing you want to wish on your worst enemy, but the kids are the thing that for me, um, you know, they're, they're the furthest thing to blame for all this. And yet they're suffering the brunt of the consequences for it. Um, I was unbelievably selfish. I wasn't thinking about them. I, you know, it's it's amazing how you're capable of compartmentalizing. I mean, we all are, but it's amazing how you can actually be a great dad. And you can actually be, in that sense, a terrible dad yeah. at the same time. Right. And... um that was the biggest pain for me. Some relationships, the, the relationships that were real still exist. Yeah. And uh, we've had to work through reconciliation and the making of amends. And I've sat across from many, many people. I've had the privilege of sitting across from many, many people uh, over the last four years and look at them in the eye and tell them how sorry I was. People who supported the ministry, people who were behind me, people who in so many different ways were just partners. Um, and in some cases, those people have forgiven me. Um, and in some cases, they've asked for forgiveness because of the way they may have handled it. And the relationship continues on. Other times, the relationship's lost. It's gone, and it's not going to be repaired this right. side of heaven. You know, it's just not um, for a variety of different reasons. You know, the Bible tells us to do our best to live at peace with all people as far as it depends on you. Yeah. Um, so that means that some relationships that broke will be broken forever. Yeah. Most of the ones that were real relationships exist today. Some don't, but some do. Uh, the relationships that maybe I thought were real, but prove not to be, don't exist. Um, The most important relationship in terms of everything that went down at that time uh, is with my kids. My ex-wife and I have worked things out in terms of, you know, forgiving one another and all of those sorts of things. Um, But the most important part for me in the aftermath of all of that was to, uh, you know, minister to my kids, yeah. to love my kids. And I am thrilled to say that as much as all of this hurt them and broke up the very sure foundation of their family, uh, they have never blinked. Right. My kids have loved me nonstop from, I mean, Literally from, I, I wrote an article describing the afternoon I sat down with my three kids to tell them what I had done and their, their different responses, which I can see like it happened five minutes ago, probably the most painful day of my life. Um, I will never forget the words that came out of their mouths and the looks on their faces, but we were able 
to work through. We're, we're very open and transparent with one another. We talk about all the hard stuff. But, you know, it's been uh, four and a half years now, and we've had those conversations, and we've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and uh, I just, I mean, I adore them. That We have a fantastic relationship. My kids and I are very close, all three of them. Um, are very close and I love it and I loving my kids loving me through my worst season in life was an amazing example of God's one-way love toward us yeah it's amazing to me that telling you not only are you a you know a a preacher of the gospel but you've had to be a recipient of that yes. same gospel and you've you've lived that out mm-hmm. and are continuing to live that out mm-hmm. you you have not uh, we'll never get to the place that, you know, you do not need a, a constant infilling of that mm-hmm. grace and of the gospel applied to your daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine in, in some ways it was a message before mm-hmm. and now it is a it is actually lifeblood for you yeah. as you've lived it out. Yeah. Well, I want to turn it positive and a little bit brighter yeah. for just a moment before we wrap up. But I do want to ask you a question or ask you to do something. I want you to just for a moment to talk to the pastor who's listening to this podcast now, uh, the husband, Mm. the father um, who has failed Mm. and who is listening to this. And he is he's scraping to find some hope in what you're saying, Mm. because he is where you were. He he might have to have that conversation with his kids. Mm. Um, He might have to tell his church Mm. um, or she Mm -hmm. um, or he's right on the edge of, of screwing everything up mm-hmm. and he's he, he or she's getting ready to do something if something doesn't change mm-hmm. for, for just a moment um, give them hope for just a moment what would you say if they were sitting across from you saying help me Tullian yeah boy man I've had many 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 do that very thing um, one of the things that being transparent does is it inspires transparency from others. So the more transparent I have been publicly about everything that I went through and everything I did and everything I experienced, uh, the more people come out of the woodworks and tell me their own stories. So I've had the pastor tell me, write to me and say, I'm in the middle of an affair. Nobody knows. I need to get out. I don't know how. Please help me. I've had the pastor email me at 10 o'clock at night. And these are all people I don't know. Yeah. Email me at 10 o'clock at night and say, um, my family just found out that I, for the la- I'm 62 years old. My family just found out that I've been struggling with same-sex attraction my entire life and outed me. And I'm now sitting in a hotel room by myself with no place to go, no friends, no job, no money. My kids won't talk to me. What can I do? Uh, this is a very real thing. Yeah. It is real. And we hear and from And it's a lot more prevalent than people think. Way more prevalent. Yeah. It's an epidemic. They think it's just a little issue over here or maybe over there. But no, it is, it is an epidemic, an yeah. absolute epidemic. And I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of notes from people all over the world to prove it. Yeah. It is an epidemic. Yeah. Um, and the church typically doesn't know what to do with one of its leaders who crashes and burns. Someone said to me, um, right when all of this stuff happened, someone said to me, and I think she was absolutely right. Churches love it when their pastor gets up and tells them that, that they are broken just like the rest of them. 
until they do something that a broken person does. Exactly. And that is exactly right. Um, so if there's a pastor out there listening and they find themselves in a situation like that, they can't tell their church or their church leadership about the thing that's robbing them of life, their deepest struggle, because they need their job. Right. Or if they lose, if they go through a divorce, they lose it all. Um, or whatever the case may be, you know, whatever the struggle may be. Um, I would just say, and it took me far too long to embrace this, uh, the truth does in the end set us free. It absolutely does. It starts with acknowledging the truth about yourself and then telling that truth. And I know it's scary because people, especially in our current church culture, don't want the pastor to be just like them. Don't want the pastor to struggle the way they do. Um, and yet pastors do. All of them do in a variety of different ways. And I can't tell each person what telling the truth looks like in their context. They need to be wise about it. They need to be discerning about it. I just know that if they are going to be free at the end of the day, it will not come by avoiding the truth. It will come as a result of embracing the truth. That I know universally. Um, I would also say uh, that um, if to the pastor or to anybody for that matter who is contemplating uh, throwing it all away because maybe for the first time in 25 years they've met someone that makes them feel alive like an 18-year-old again and they're blinded by this sort of fake love to the point where they absolutely believe it's real love. Um, I would just say that uh, the shattered dreams and the pain that accompany throwing something away, regardless of what's going on, now, throwing something away. There, Well, let me put it this way. There is a way to deal with a marriage that is on the rocks, and that is not it. That will compound the problem it will make your life harder. It will make it worse. You will suffer consequences that you never dreamed imaginable. Um, and for the pastor who may be out there that hears all of this and goes, well, thank God I'm not like them. You know, I would say to them, I promise you, uh, you are capable of failing in ways that are unimaginable to you right now. Uh, this was not some proclivity of mine that, you know, this was not who I was for my entire adult life. This was something I swore I would never do. And it's a place I would never go. And that's where I found myself. Um, so you are capable of failing in a way that you can never imagine. Uh, and then the best news that I can give you is this. If and when you do fail, uh, 
God, because of Jesus, does not count your sins against you. That is the beauty of the gospel. You may count your sins against you. Others may count your sins against you. But God counted your sins against Christ. And that means he does not count your sins against you. And that alone, regardless of what I do vocationally or anything else, that alone is the hope that can set people free who are living in slavery. Thank you. Um, you have something very exciting going on now, and I want to end with that, and that is yeah. the launching of a brand new church yes. called The Sanctuary. Yes. Tell us a yes. little about it, uh, how they can find out more, because you're, you're taking this story and this message yeah. to, to more people and this time it's different it is because you're you, you don't have the goal of just grow 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 no. you don't have the goal of it being a mega church no you God, just want to no. bring hope yeah and and life and and truth oh. to whoever decides to show up and be a part yeah of what's going on so yeah. what's what's yeah so i was out weeks of pastoral ago? ministry for four and a half years yeah. and never thought i would do it again never wanted to do it again and a group of people approached us about eight months ago from uh west near the west palm beach area which is about you know an hour north of fort lauderdale and asked if we would consider coming to plant a church and i was like i'm intrigued but man that is not what i envisioned doing for the rest of my life and the more we talked about it prayed about it we decided, in fact, this is what God wanted us to do. So we launched the sanctuary. We called it that very specifically because the word sanctuary literally means refuge, safety. Um, and one of the things that all of these people who have reached out to us via email or social media or whatever to tell us their own crash and burn stories is that the church is all too often the scariest place rather than the safest place for fallen people to fall down and broken people to break down. We want the sanctuary to be just that, a sanctuary, uh, where we are set free by the radicality of God's love to tell the truth about ourselves without fear of rejection, a church where we can take our masks off and stop pretending and uh, be real. And we launched two weeks ago, and uh, we're just we're excited about it. I think I told you, I don't care if it's got 100 people That's or 1,000 right. people. I really don't care. I'm just... Very, very grateful that God has given us this. Well, Tully, and what an honor it is to have you here. And I'm hopeful more and more people uh, who are listening to the podcast will follow you. And they can find you on Facebook. They can find you on uh, Twitter, I believe. Twitter, uh, Instagram. Instagram, yeah. pretty much anywhere. And and your name will not get mixed up with anybody no. else's. No, so they begin even if you spell it right. wrong, it'll pull it <laughs> yeah, up. You'll trust find me. it. Yeah. And uh, there's several books they can find on Amazon, any other yep. uh, places to sell books. They can find you, again, your name's easy to, mm. we'll, we'll put the um, uh, the name there in the podcast yeah. at the bottom notes there. They can link uh, to utullian.net. They can go there yep. too. Mm -hmm. And uh, so just great ways of keeping up with you and what's going on at the sanctuary. Mm. Uh, do you have a website? With the, the sanctuary new? does yes and okay. i think it's called i'm, I'm gonna check real <laughs> okay. quick because uh i'm you know we're, we're brand new i'm right. just getting i think it's the sanctuary i'm gonna tell you right now if i have service in this room i think it's the sanctuary fl okay i don't I, well I mean, that's okay up. we'll find so, it put it in the notes for people to the sanctuary fl.org okay the sanctuary fl. that's it all right yes. there yeah, we yeah, go yeah. <laughs> and people can uh, check that out so again thank you uh, for being here. Thank you. Thank you for 
your story, your life. You have poured out so much today, all day long with our men, and then here with this interview, and then tomorrow, uh, more and more people will be able to hear uh, who, what, what God's doing in you. And this is an ongoing story. Yeah, and as they is. continue to follow, as all of yeah, our that's exactly are. right. Yeah. And it's an honor for all of us to be a, a little part of it. So, so thank you. Thank you, Scott. All right. 